the Self Believe Podcast, where we talk with people who have great influence in the Metro Detroit business community. We discuss all aspects of their journey, including the moments they had to draw deeply on their self belief to achieve their vision. I will be your host, Jordana Shavitz, along with my co host, Keith Baldwin, sponsored by Regal Payments and Jack Digital, as well as our studio partner, Office Evolution of Troy. These conversations will potentially make you re examine your beliefs about business, people, and life in general. Here's a taste of what's coming up today. Yeah, I guess it really taught me that I hate maybes. You know, mm-hmm. if you say no, it's fine. You know, you don't want the product, you don't want to schedule the camp, or if you're not sure, but they do need a no or a yes at some point. You know, we can have maybe for a little bit, but we've got to have a point where we make a decision here. If it's kind of a maybe forever, then that's just a waste of everyone's time. Don't want to commit to social media agency just yet? Why not try a content day? We will create 10 custom curated done for your reels for your brand. Before the content day, we will provide a comprehensive plan of what will be creative. We will provide all the props, etc., that you need. Contact Jack Digital today for more details. Let's explore and scrutinize together as we unlock the mind of today's guest to provide you with inspiration and tangible takeaways that you can choose to apply in your life. This week's guest is my fellow host, Keith Baldwin, who owns Regal Payments. Keith, welcome to the hot seat. Thank you. I want to change things up and start with a few quick fire questions for you today. So All the right. first one is, where did you grow up and do you have any brothers or sisters? I grew up in South London uh, near Croydon and uh, Crystal Palace, which is the soccer team I support. And I have an older brother. He's seven years older than me. Uh, I was close to a lot of my family growing up, mainly on my mum's side, close to my grandma, my two aunts, uncle and cousins. And my parents still live there and still close to them and try and go back and see them each year. That's amazing. And I know you're going in a few weeks, so that would be exciting. Yeah. What was the biggest thing that surprised you when you came to America? I think the biggest thing was probably just literally the size of it. I mean, I think England is smaller than Rhode Island or something like that. So when I was first in uh, California, I was at the beach, and then we drove to Palm Springs. So you're at the desert, and then we went up to Bishop, where Mammoth Lakes is in the mountains. And it was just kind of crazy to me that you can just get all those different climates all in one day or a couple of days. That makes sense, because in the UK, like, you know, it's very rainy. It's just rainy. So you came across <laughs> the pond, that's all I think. That's right. I know you're a soccer coach. Which famous coaches do you look up to? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of coaches I've studied and tried to learn from. In terms of soccer, there's a couple, one called Sir Bobby Robson. He was really good with man management. Uh, the other one is uh, Pep Guardiola. He still coaches now, regarded as one of the best coaches. I like how he sees the game and tactics. It's kind of like chess, obsessing on the details. But there's coaches from other sports as well. Um, I lived in Tennessee and got to watch Pat Summit a lot. She was the ladies basketball coach for the University of Tennessee. And she always demanded and produced high standards whilst developing her players as people. And she was famous for that. And she, there's, a, there's a quote I always like of hers, which is, uh, winning is fun, sure, but winning is not the point. Wanting to win is the point. Not giving up is the point. Never letting up is the point. Never being satisfied with what you've done is the point. Um, so, yeah, I've always liked that because, you know, you're not worried about the win, but it's the desire and the passion to go for something I think she touches on. It's very and, inspirational. Yeah, and then last one, you know, here this year, Dan Campbell, done a great job with the Lions. He's changed the whole culture and being really authentic in his leadership. Yes, 
I mean, honestly, my husband is like, Dan Campbell, he made the team believe, but he's also like, Dan Campbell, you're up by 17. But that's another story. No, that's, that's a tactics decision. Right? Yeah. What are some of your favorite places in America you've been to? Yeah, I've been lucky to visit and live in a lot of places in America. Um, I've always loved the Oregon coast. When I was out there, Cannon Beach and down, um, it's more of a rugged coast. I like that. Um, I like the mountains, the skiing in Utah and Colorado. When I was younger in Hawaii, Hawaii was great. Um, but when I go to California, last time I drove um, the road Palms to Pines from Palm Springs through Idlewild. That's a great road, and I did that when I was first in America. So it was kind of cool taking my kids on that road 20-odd oh, cool. years later. Some wow. great, great views there. And as a family, we drove up the one a couple of years ago and uh, beautiful California coast, and we stayed a couple of nights in Big Sur, which I, which I like. So, but yeah, you know, Detroit and Michigan can get a bad rap, but I do like Michigan. Michigan's a cool place. It's a, you know, it's a, Detroit's a great city on the up, and the rest of the state has a lot of natural beauty. You know, you just got to deal with the cold for a couple of months. It's true. I mean, I, I have to say, I lived in Los Angeles for two years, and I love it. I think it was a good choice. Yeah. Where would you recommend people go in London if they visit, if you only had one place to tell them? Um... Well, one place is, is tough. I won't give you a list of 20, but, um, you know, I'm going back in March and I'm taking my kids to some of the tourist attractions and, you know, Tower of London and going inside Tower of Bridge is good. Some of the big famous museums like the Natural History and the British Museum are good. I would recommend the, the Churchill War Rooms as well. Kind of slightly less famous, maybe Camden Market on a Sunday is cool. And uh, definitely go take in a soccer event or a rugby event, some sort of sporting event. And uh, now you always have the option of getting a train to Paris for a couple of days and coming yeah. back from London. So, um, yeah, there's tons you can do in the city and you have tons of accessibility into Europe. As we always know in this podcast, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I would go to a game, a soccer game, just because of Ted Lasso. Oh, there you go. So when was the last time you admitted being to being wrong and apologized? Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm sure in work, yeah, whenever things go wrong in work, I try and imply, employ the kind of radical acceptance philosophy and figure out what went wrong, accept it, and try and deal with it and uh, fix the issue. Um, in, in personal life, you know, one time it's kind of stuck out for me is when I was camping with friends in, in Cornwall, England, when I was around 18. After the bars, we, we got the bus shuttle service back to our campsite. You know, I had a couple too many drinks, and for some reason I went to pay the fare to the shuttle lady. I kind of lied about it and saved myself $5. And when I got back to the campsite, my friends gave me a hard time about it, and I started realizing that was just a really stupid thing to do. And, I, and when I, I set my alarm for the morning, woke up with a hangover, walked a couple of miles to the bus stop where the lady was going to be for her first stop of the day and apologized and, and paid her back. So I, I feel like I was immature for too long when I was young. So that was kind of a, a decision early then. I was starting to accept responsibility and made a better decision. So at least you can look back on that and realize like, hey, it was a bad decision and you wouldn't do that going forward. Yeah, I mean, I still made plenty of mistakes after it, but hopefully you always try and get better. Of course, it's all you can do is you can look up, you can go for the next day. Yeah. So what's like a life lesson you really want to teach your kids? Uh, well, my kids now, my son's turning nine, my daughter's turning 17. I hope to help them, you know, develop a sense of self much quicker than I think I did. Um, you know, aspects such as hard work, accountability, positivity, and a combination of humility and self-belief are all important. And I just try and highlight these things appropriately as life situations come up and they need to make choices of how to respond in their life.
That's very smart. I mean, all you can do is kind of be who you are and explain that you're not perfect and everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, and talk through situations kind of maturely. Exactly. So you've owned Regal for 15 years now. So what aspect are you most proud of? Uh, definitely the relationships we've built with customers uh, just by following through, being true to our word, being available and uh, acting with integrity. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, Regal's a great company and you definitely built it to be quite successful. So enough quick fire now. Let's go to your teenage years. When during your summers before you started college, like I know that you had a paper route and you're, you worked at the supermarket like Kroger and you did other different jobs for people. Do you think that what did you learn from those jobs? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, the earliest one was a paper route. It was just on a Friday, but it was uh, quite far. It wasn't like a, I didn't have a bike, so I had to trudge, and it was really like one house took it quite far. But I, So I got up a couple hours early and, and went and did it. Um, you know, you just learn responsibility. You got to get up on time, and you got to get paid. And then, uh, yeah, I always wanted a, a job, really. It kind of got impressed on me that, you know, if you want a car, if you want other things, you got to pay for it. So... Get, get a job and you know, if you want money and freedom I mean I did get an allowance and some other things but if you want more money to do more things go find a job so that makes sense you basically learned that at a very young age so then you went obviously went to sports management so like you just like sports like why did you do that well I, I like sports I had no real idea what I wanted to do I was kind of found a degree called leisure management with applications of sport it was just kind of a business management in the sports industry um it sounded like something i would maybe do so i was able to get into university to do that degree and when i was doing that then um yeah i played on the soccer team at college and uh, was able to um do a coaching course and got me to america to co-coach that's very cool. Do you think that since soccer is a huge sport in like the UK, do you feel like people are like, oh my God, I have to do soccer? All the young boys are kind of not forced, but their parents really expect them to do soccer? No, I don't. No, you're not forced. I mean, as much as you're forced into anything that your parents want you to do. That's like true. if your parents were a gymnast, maybe they want you to be a gymnast. Um, I've not forced my kids. I mean, my daughter plays soccer and field hockey. When I grew up, I played soccer and field hockey. Okay. Field hockey is a guy's sport in England, so I played it at high school. I played field hockey, rugby, soccer. Wow. Um, uh, they were my main sports. You were very um, athletic. Kind of. <laughs> I wasn't a superstar at any of them. But uh, <laughs> but I, saw, I kind of introduced my daughter to that sport, those sports, but I didn't force her into them. Um, but so in England, soccer is a big part of the culture, so you know about it. And but my Ted Lasso fan here. There you go, there you go. But my my parents uh, weren't big soccer people, so it was actually I saw. I remember I saw down at the corner store there was like a notice board, okay. and they wanted like kids to play on a team. And I maybe it was eight or nine, and I said like, oh, can I try out for that ad that's written up there? And my dad took me, and I joined that team. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, so basically, when you were summer, when you were twenty, you you had a ten week opportunity to go to coach different camps in Southern California. Will yeah. you tell us more about that? Yeah, so Major League Soccer, which is the main league out here, we're talking late nineties. Um, they um, had a camp division that was a company that was their official camps, and they had a lot of camps in the Northeast. So a few of us in my college degree. I uh, did the coaching course, and then we got recruited by Major League Soccer Camps. And uh, 
all of my friends, like the seven of them that went out that summer, they all got told they were going to do camps in the northeast, New England. Oh, wow. I think one was went to do camps in Atlanta and randomly I was told, uh, yeah, we've got you down to do camps in LA region. I was like, okay, cool. So we came out and did camps nice and in uh, Southern California. I was 20. I had my 21st birthday in Palm Springs. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was an experience. That was my first. I mean, I'd been to Europe. I'd been to France and a couple of uh, places, but I'd never been to America. So that was my first time in America. How did you feel as like a 20-year-old just here on your own? Like you didn't have any family. You didn't know anybody. Well, I wasn't really on my own at that stage okay. because I, I came out. You, the whole bunch of coaches came out. So okay. my friends, they were in different places, but there was about 500 coaches sent out to America to do these camps. So I was put with a group of people, and you became friends as you traveled around and did the camps together because some camps were big, and they needed eight coaches for that wow. week. Then, okay. you, then next week you travel to, you know, uh, Ukaipa near Palm Springs, and that's a three-coach camp. So it just changed and every, all the weekends you met up and kind of like went to your next camp and nice it was it was it was fun you stayed with family housing as well so i got to meet uh different families and they hosted us for a week while we coached a camp in their city amazing so you had different experiences yeah do they still do that program today I believe so. I, the, there is camps. I mean, the soccer world's moved on uh, a lot in 20-odd years. So all the the uh, clubs and uh, that needed camps, they do their own these days. Okay. They don't need to bring companies in. That makes some sense. Some do. Some do, but um, it's less and less. Okay. So after that, you went back to the UK. And tell us a little bit about that and then how you came back to Nashville. Yeah, so I still had a year of my degree left, so I did the whole summer in L.A., and then I went back, finished my college degree, and then uh, was able to come out again, and I was even uh, luckier. I was one of the four selected to go do camps in Hawaii. Oh, and, uh, cool. <laughs> so ultimately, yeah, we spent uh, nine weeks in Oahu, two on Maui, one on the Big Island, and um, we actually initially only had enough camps booked to do about seven of those weeks, but whilst I was out there, I was able to do a good job on the camps, drum up enough interest, and I was able to uh, sell and create work for us to do camps the other four weeks we were there. Amazing. And uh, then went on to San Francisco, San Jose area, uh, Silicon Valley area, and we did a, you know, more of a residential coaching program. A, a, a club wanted us to be there for about 10 weeks and kind of coach their coaches and coach different teams there. And that got to the November, and my visa ran out, went back to England, I went back to my job at TGI Fridays, where I'd worked during college, had my flair on. And, oh, wow. Uh, How was that? How did you feel after coaching and then going back to being a waiter? Uh, it was fine, because I actually had um, a purpose in mind. I okay. knew I'd done quite well selling those camps in Hawaii, and I'd been told that there was a regional manager job coming up for next year. Okay. Where it was more of a full-time in America type thing. Okay. So that interview was going to be in the following March. Uh, so um, in my mind, I was like, work at TGI, bank some money, and then interview in March. And if I wasn't going to get that job, then reconsider my future at that point. But I kind of was uh, focused on interviewing in March and getting that job. So, yeah, TGI Fridays was good. I mean, it, it taught me a lot of sales skills. Um, tipping's not uh, – over the years, tipping's got better in England, okay. but it's not a big cultural thing to tip. Like if you got a 10% tip in England back in the day, that was a big deal. That makes but, sense. But TGI Fridays, because it was an American restaurant, quite a lot of Americans came in there, and people just kind of knew to tip anyway. 
Um, so I got decent tips and I won sales competitions that they were put on, like who could sell the most bud to customers or whatever. So it was fun. That makes okay. That's really cool. I think that you know what you learn a lot. Like in all your different jobs, even to me in retail, I learned a lot about my customers and my clients these days. All right. So then after that, going forward, so then you got that regional manager job, and then kind of what happened from there? Yeah. So my job was to uh, help grow a region. Uh, I got given the region of the Southern States. I went down to Nashville, went to learn from uh, someone who was currently the regional manager that was moving up to more of a national role of equipment and uh, uniforms that they were doing for the camps. Uh, But he taught me the ropes. And, uh, yeah, he was a great guy. And I ran Nashville and worked that summer in the camps and ran Tennessee. And then as that summer was over, I moved to Memphis to a big program I had sold during that summer. Awesome. And I was in charge of uh, Tennessee, then North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee. So that whole southeast region. You had a big job when you were so young still. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of work, and uh, my role, as well as being a coach, was to also sell coaching programs. So um, we would, I would call um, presidents of soccer clubs in the evenings. I would call them and uh, try and set up meetings to go to. No, no Zoom meetings back then. So then I know you told me before. So basically, after that, so you're at that region. And they said they weren't going to pay you, and then you said you had to move on. So tell us a little more about that and the, the story. Yeah. The, the frustrating thing was I put my kind of heart and soul into that, um, so many hours, um, and I grew the region. That region was underperforming in a lot of areas. Um, the, the previous guy had done a great job, so it was no real reflection on him, but they okay. had some, they, he done, did a good job of selling the summer camps, but then they added different aspects like sell uniforms, sell equipment, sell uh, long-term training programs to one club. And they were new divisions that he wasn't doing much in because he had uh, a habit of doing really, really well on the campsite. So I came in, I maintained and did well selling the camps, but then I I smashed all my targets in all those other areas of um, equipment, uniform, and long-term training programs was kind of my baby that I sold to clubs. It's like, you want us in there? So when I smashed all those targets, I, you know, was on a salary plus commission and they, my commission was going to be double my salary, which wow. wasn't, wasn't much that back then, but, you but know, still it's a lot. It's, I mean, it was a lot ben. to me, you know, and of uh, course. the long story short is that they, they refused to pay me. And when I, I kept nailing, well, why, why aren't you paying me? And they Terrible. snapped and said, that, well, you're on rookie cap. I'm like, well, because it's your first year. I said, I didn't come in and inherit this. I came in inherited um yes he was doing well in the camps but i maintained and grew it and in all the other areas i grew from nothing so exactly so i i deserve this and then it got to a point where it was like look you're on a visa we kind of own you shut up and uh, deal with it or um you know i will just set, sack you and there's more people waiting for your job and uh damn it's not like i had money to sue these guys so I actually was able to, from someone I had coached um, in Alabama, I was able to talk to him. Um, I coached his son, and he owned a landscaping company. He 
thought the situation was unfair and he said, well, why don't I sponsor you or your visa through my company and then you can stay and then you can do private coaching and other things. So that's what happened. So tell us a little about that. So were you, Keith, were you a good landscaper or no? <laughs> no. So, yeah, I think I mentioned <laughs> to you it was funny because uh, my wife understands I, I'm good at many things around the house, like cooking or just other skills, but uh, being a handyman is not my skill. So when I was... Uh, with doing the private coach in Alabama, I had a visa through his landscaping construction company. Yeah, I had the option of doing some days of work in that construction company landscaping and did a couple, but I ended up like in the building they were working on. I broke an ex expensive lampshade or something just through being clumsy and useless. And he get in a very nice way. He said, hey, you know, you don't have to work for my landscaping if you, just because I sponsor your visa. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. All right, so then after that, so what happened after that? Well, the big thing was I was there in Alabama, and I you know, was mid-20s at that time, um, nearly 25, maybe 24, and I was trying to consider what to do with my life. I mean, I was private coaching, and I was charging 40, 50 bucks an hour, which was decent, um, but there's only so many hours you can do uh, because kids are in school. Exactly. So I was doing not much during the day, and... Uh, I answered an ad in a newspaper, a very generic ad, and went in, and it turned out to be door-to-door -door sales. Okay. And I was like, well, full commission. I was like, well, I guess I can do it. I'm doing nothing else anyway. So I gave it a try and started doing it, going into businesses. And uh, they actually had two. It was a marketing company that was um, the feet on the street. And they had two campaigns. One was for a website company and one okay. was for merchant services, which I do to this day. But I never did it then. And I kind of thought it... You dipped it, your toe into it. And well, for half a day. And I thought it looked boring <laughs> and I didn't like it. And I was like, you know, I'd rather do that website campaign. Okay. Back in the day, it was uh, going into a business, offering them a five-page, five-image website, free for the first month. Then it was like $25 a month after. And That's so cheap compared to now. That's right. Just getting them to sign up and that was it our job was done and um, move on and find new customers every single day and they did that and yeah that company had opportunity it had opportunity for, for growth and it kind of captured my imagination and I stayed with that company for a while and grew through it which we can probably come on to well yeah I guess before that I was in Alabama and um, I was engaged at the time but I had the option with the as the office moved from Alabama to San Francisco, the, the owner of that office wanted to take me with them. I thought it was a good opportunity. So I went out to San Francisco. Um, my fiance at the time stayed back in Alabama. We were in San Francisco for six months. Then she moved her office again to Portland, Oregon to kind of fully be on her own. Okay. And that was meant to be where I was going to get promoted out of. My fiance moved out to Oregon. There was a whole okay. bunch of us living in a house, though, and uh, it was hard getting promoted because you had to not only do good in sales, full commission every day, but then you had to recruit people and train mm -hmm. them and have a team under you, and it's it's not easy keeping people motivated and successful on full commission. Um, so there were some ups and downs, but eventually in one of the up, and then I had a personal life going on, that relationship. I should have ended before I did, but we ended up getting married and then quickly divorced. And I was pretty broke at the time. Um, but I managed so now, was to... this like a Kim Kardashian wedding? Were you married for like six weeks, ten weeks? No, six months. Six months? Six months. Okay. Six months. So you gave it a try. You could say that. <laughs> That's a separate <laughs> podcast, all the ins and outs of that one. 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, we didn't have really anything together to split. So okay. it was a pretty easy, okay, it's a it's, uh, pretty easy thing to divide up. There, okay. wasn't, there wasn't a house. There wasn't even a car. Wow. Um, she never let me drive her car, by the way. Oh, my goodness. Uh, You're married. Was, yeah, I don't think she was committed to the union. There was, uh, it was her car. I wasn't allowed to drive it. Wow. <laughs> Quite maybe, a story maybe, for another podcast. Maybe I was such a bad driver, she just never trusted me. <laughs> Who knows? Well, other side of the road, so I just you never know. That's right. That's right. But I did eventually hit my requirements. I was able to keep, while all that craziness and other things was going on in my personal life, I was able to go out and achieve my sales goals. I used to get dropped in downtown Portland because I didn't have a car at the time. For you know, sure. And I would walk business to business and... Um, I got it done, and I got people on my team and uh, qualified to have my own office. And they offered me San Jose, but I kind of wanted just to go somewhere completely fresh. And okay. I, I knew a, another opportunity was coming a month later, and they're like, okay, we have a client that wants representation in Detroit. And I was like, I've never been there. Send me there. That's where the journey started to Detroit. And now, how long have you been in Detroit now altogether? About 18 years. Wow. All right, so tell us more about that. Came to Detroit, came with two people. It should have been like five, but it, you know, it ended up being two to help open my office. We, uh, I was interviewing and then going out and doing sales myself. I mean, I worked super hard to grow my office. Of and course. After six months, I had like 20 people in my office. But then I went back to England for a wedding and got stuck there because my visa wasn't done properly. Um, I thought it was, but when I went to get back on the plane, I found out it wasn't. So I had to wait like another eight weeks for it to be processed. Um, uh, and it was just a, a tough thing because my office was kind of relying on me and I wasn't able to be there. There was someone yeah, who was... Yeah, also wasn't... Think about this also. There wasn't Zoom and there wasn't that stuff back then. No, there was someone who was sharing the office with me who had his own office, but we were sharing space. And um, he was doing a different campaign to me in a way. Mm -hmm. And he basically stole my staff. But it's, it's, I mean, it's okay. It's just kind of, is what Taught it is. Taught you a lesson. Yeah, and I came back and I, my staff had kind of gone with his assistant manager to Utah where they were opening a, a um, another office. And I mean, it was just hard. You know, you have to really be there and work with people, especially when they're doing door-to-door -door sales, full, full commission, they need you. And I wasn't there and... But they came back and there was a couple and they the network of locations, their main um, main franchise office, I guess is the best way of calling it, who get the clients for these offices nationwide. They they said that oh, we want to send you to Philly. Verizon's a big campaign. We've okay. got going there. Why don't you rebuild things in Philly? Okay. So I just started dating my now wife. We were dated six weeks. I'm stuck in England for eight. I come back. I'm back for literally one week. I'm like, oh, I'm, honey, I'm back. I'm she so happy. She must have been absolutely <laughs> annoyed. Well, you know, and then, uh, then I was like, I got to go to Philly. So we decided to do long distance. I went to Philly. From Philly, I opened a location in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and then from there, I got the opportunity after six another six months in Jacksonville to go to Atlanta to do a new campaign and the idea was to go from Atlanta to then come back and open a location in Detroit where okay. my now wife is but she was maybe going to move but the whole thing in Atlanta I felt basically it ran its course um, I put you know blood sweat tears my heart into that um, so when I did actually decide to leave it was pretty emotional but I had found an exit route it wasn't like I was leaving to nothing okay so you had you had something in mind yeah so uh, 
a lady I had worked with, she had gone into the merchant services industry. She had left uh, that business a couple of years ago, and she recruited me to run an office in the Midwest because okay. she knew I knew how to run sales teams. And she's like, I'm doing merchant services in North Carolina. You should run a Midwest location. If it's run its course with this other company, come, we'll train you, and then go do your thing. So that's what I did. So do you think that on all, this, uh, all these things you had to face throughout like your job and young, do you feel like... What do you think the biggest thing you've learned from that was? Um, compartmentalizing, I guess, is one. Sometimes my, you know... So basically, I'd yeah. say, like, all, all these things, like, you definitely rose above and said, you know what, like, I'm going to keep moving on, because many times you could have been like, I'm just going to go back to England. But no, you sit up, and you're like, okay, I got this. So then Well, a little bit, because, yeah, the and that was one thing, is, like, what are you going to do? Like, yeah. there's no... There was no safety net. Like, yep. it's, uh, what am I going to do? Go back to England and yep. start from scratch? Yep. I mean, my parents would have let me stay at their house for a little bit, but it wasn't going to be a permanent thing. And it's like, you know, go get a job. Uh, so I wasn't going back to any cushy situation. The, uh, the older you get, the more you want to be further along in your career. So yep. it was always find a way to push forward. Find a way to push forward. So, okay, so after that, so after you work merchant services, then you open the Midwest office, and then you worked there for two years, and then you started working, then you started Regal? Yeah, so we ran, I ran the Midwest for a company called Payment Alliance for a couple of years, did really well, we were the number one office in the country, grew awesome. it, and uh, yeah, we were killing it, um, but after a year, a year and a half, um, the... I didn't love how the the national sales manager based out of Florida was running things. He kind of uh, wanted to micromanage a little bit too much, even though we were bringing in all the results. But also, I just really felt like I learned the industry and knew all the nuances of it over that year and a half. And there were certain things that that company was doing that I felt they could have done better from a customer service point of view or this or that. So it started the germination in my mind of, well, I should just start my own business doing this. And that way I can serve my customers better. And as a byproduct, I'm actually going to make more money than being just an employee running the Midwest. And I have more control over things and I can set a culture in my own style. And so I took the leap and uh, started Regal. That's amazing. So what do you think was like a big challenge starting Regal? Because you'd never done that before. Yeah, I think when people take a leap to start their own business, I think you should always have a ramp-up plan. So, yes, there was a non-compete clause in my thing, but it wasn't the strongest non-compete clause. Okay. And I had built a lot of relationships with a lot of customers, so I was able to go to a lot of my customers and have them move to Regal. So it was a nice ramp-up to get going. And also then I had a sales plan. I went out and I just worked really hard. I didn't expect customers to come to me. I went out and got them and hustled, did networking meetings constantly. So I'd go out cold call throughout the day. I'd try and work and get referrals. And I'm going to every chamber meeting, every, every type of networking you can get your hands on. I'm just trying to get out there to meet people. So what do you think with Regal was like the big like starting point where you're like, okay, this is going to be successful. I have employees. What did you think originally when you started Regal where you'd be today? Do you think it's the same place you are now or did you want to be somewhere else? The, the model's slightly different. Like uh, one nice thing about the merchant services industry is it's uh, 
you make money residually. Okay. So once you have a customer, they're your customer and they're taking credit cards, then you make a little bit of money from that every single month, every single time they swipe a credit card. Amazing. So just like insurance agents and other, once you build up a portfolio of clients, then that generates income for you. So obviously over time, as you make your portfolio bigger and bigger and bigger, it's uh, it's a good thing. And also one thing I love about the industry it gives you time. So now, whether I'm actively working it yeah. or not, if I have customers and they're happy, then I'm I, I'm making money as a company. And that gives That's me then great. freedom to go spend more time with my kids and, and do other things. That's wonderful. So do you, do you agree with the common perception that every credit card guy is the same? As we know on this podcast, I like to call you the English guy. So as the English guy, what do you offer your customers that's different than anybody else? Yeah, I mean, like any industry, you've got to try and have points of difference that set you apart. Um, in in my industry, there has been you know, people who've come men for better words, who've told someone they're going to give them a lower rate or better yeah. service and haven't come through with it. So I, I was successful by really listening to people who've been burned by people like that and then winning their trust and then earning their trust ever since. And I've had a lot of those customers stay with me for a long time. Um, so, yeah, following through on my word, um, being able to explain things on their level that matter to them, um, I feel sets me apart. I care about service. I care about keeping customers. Okay. That, I mean, that's all, that's all amazing. So what's like one of your longest customers? Uh, yeah, a guy who owns a few vet clinics is probably one of my longest. I walked okay. into him um, as a pure cold call, and I started speaking and the, with the English accent, and he, <laughs> he quickly brought up soccer because he's, he's like, you're English, you probably like Amazing. soccer. Amazing. And yeah, so we talked soccer, and he gave me a chance at uh, one of his vet clinics. And okay. Now I do all of them, and he's a good friend, and uh, yeah, it's... Uh, that's one thing I've really liked about my industry is many people who I've become really good friends with that I've just met for a cold call. That's actually amazing because a lot of people on the Self-Belief podcast, like, they are your friends and some of them are your clients. And it's like you definitely just met them through a cold call. And I think that there's a lot of your personality because you're like, hey, you can make anybody real, really feel comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I try. I try. I think you really do a good job of it. Thanks. <laughs> A lot of people on the podcast we ask, we're letting you in on some insider secrets today. So, like, do you feel like you had any luck in any of this? Or do you feel like it was all, su- it was all success because you had good fortune and you worked really hard? Well, yeah, I mean, there's that famous quote of, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So there's always hard work to it. But, yeah, definitely, definitely I feel I've been lucky and had some luck situations that you look back on um, but there's also been bad luck situations but then you power through them uh, some lucky things is timing I guess uh, I feel lucky to have met a lot of people I've met um, I'll go back to even the soccer uh, with major league soccer camps once I was in Memphis they sent me down there to run the whole region and I was staying with a family and I was only meant to stay with that family for a couple of weeks. Um, but they let me stay with them for like three months. Oh, wow. Before they very nicely said, maybe you should get an apartment. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it was, they became like my American family. They treated me so well. And they kind of helped me give get the, get the platform to do the work I was doing. And I've always appreciated their welcomeness, them taking me into their family. Um, 
and just have a lack of timing. Uh, when I was in Portland, Oregon, we're in San Francisco on doing the job before I got my own office. There was a couple of times when I almost quit because there were some really hard weeks and just a couple of things happened in those weeks where I was literally about to go in the office and quit that kind of kept me in the role. Um, you know, some big clients over the years, it's that sliding door moments. If I hadn't gone out and done sales that day, if I hadn't gone into that networking mm -hmm. meeting, I wouldn't have got it. But, you know, I did end up going to that networking meeting, met that person, got that client, did this, did that. So you got to put yourself in situations and luck and opportunities kind of come your way. But you have to have your eyes wide open to see them as a, as a luck and opportunity thing. Because sometimes people don't see them. Is that, I mean, exactly. I think that everybody maybe does have a little bit of luck, but they also have a lot of hard work and drive. Did yeah. you have any mentors in the past that you want to share today that really helped? Um, yeah, I mean, different organizations and people. Um, the guy at Major League Soccer, he was very organized. One of his skills when he did the camps was no one collected more deposits than him. When he sold a camp, he made sure he got like $1,300 deposit immediately throughout the country that people just weren't doing that. And then they would expect to have a camp. Um, but people weren't committed to doing that camp and it wouldn't really go as well as they thought. But John in uh, Tennessee, he's, his camps always went well because he got deposits. And that made me realize that, yeah, if you're going to do a sale, if you're going to sell something to someone, you've got to not be afraid to ask for the deposit because if they want it, they want it. So let's, you know, book it and let's confirm it and show me you really want it by committing some money to it. Exactly, because I feel like if you don't, it's like, show me where your money is. If you don't put the money down, it's like you don't believe in it yourself. Yeah, I guess it really taught me that I hate maybes. You know, mm -hmm. if you say no, it's fine. You know, you don't want the product. You don't want to schedule the camp or if you're not sure. But I do need a no or a yes at some point. You know, we can have maybe for a little bit, but we've got to have a point where we make a decision here. If it's kind of a maybe forever, then that's just a waste of everyone's time. Where do you see your industry in the next, like, 10 years? Because I know it's changed in the last, like, 18 yeah, I mean, merchant processing, accepting payments has changed a lot. It's all about a lot about the equipment now in terms of point of sale. Years, even I say years ago, five, seven years ago, those flat screen point of sale systems, they were pretty expensive. Now we're almost having to give them away for free or less than a thousand dollars. It's uh, every business is having them, which can have your inventory on them, which is all great. It's all great. Um, but yeah, it's all about the payment experience, the ease of getting payments that then sync up to your accounting software, sync up to your website. Uh, so I think it's just more and more technology available to smaller and smaller customers that used to be available to big customers only. That makes sense. Are you worried about like the people who have like say if you're in a med spa and they have a whole integrated system where it's like they buy this platform and they also have credit card processing in there? Like, are you worried about those companies? Well, there's, there's opportunities and there's challenges. So, sure, if what you're talking about is if I develop a software company yeah. and I'm going to be um, doing software specifically for um, medical places, like yeah. dental offices. Sure. So if I develop my own dental software that helps you run your dental office, I will then integrate payments into it and I'll say, hey, if you want to use my software, you have to use my my uh, chosen payments provider, and that way, as a software company, I'm getting a bit of money from the chosen payment provider. So what that does, obviously, locks out all the competition, yep. people like me that are trying to earn dentist business. It's a threat. I mean, I've lost customers to that over the years, but then there's different opportunities in different ways as well. So 
It's good yeah. that you see it as an opportunity instead of like it. You see it's opportunity and challenge instead of like, oh no, my business is going down the drain. Well, it's a, you just it's a great opportunity if you're the chosen pay- payment provider of that software company. Yeah. So then it's about going out there and making more partnerships with companies like that that are locking in customers. So what are three compliments you'd give yourself? Uh, well, I think I've been hardworking in, you know, maybe industrious, like an industrious little mouse. I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> I think I'm authentic. I try and be true and honest and uh, true to my values. And uh, I care whether, I mean, I still coach soccer to this day. So whether it's caring about the players I coach and caring about um, my customers, but also this podcast. So I think we've talked um, one thing i've set with this podcast is i really one of the goals is i really want all the guests to walk out of here with a smile or an inner glow feeling good about themselves because they've talked about them you know what they've achieved for an hour so i I think that's actually so you know what let's end this podcast by let's kind of talk about why you wanted to start the self-belief podcast yeah, so I was running, obviously I run Regal Payments, and I was thinking I don't do a ton of marketing, which is fine. I've always grown without it, but um, I didn't want to do too much social media. I didn't know how that was going to work right now. Obviously, that's your expertise. <laughs> but I did kind of feel I know a lot of people. I know a lot of interesting people. Why don't I do some sort of podcast? And um, there's a few podcasts I listened to that I thought were interesting. I thought if I take one that picks the brain of uh, successful and interesting people, but make it Detroit area focused, that could be pretty interesting for people. And this podcast has kind of grown. I think we've been lucky to have some fantastic guests. We really have. And I know uh, I found a lot of them interesting. They're very interesting. So speaking of that then, who are some of your favorite guests? We love them all, obviously, but like, what are a few episodes that really stuck out to you? Yeah, like favorite guests, I guess ones that uh, surprised me a little bit. So, I, I, I mean, I, I, we've talked. I liked Valerie, uh, the lawyer, just because I thought her stories of the Supreme Court, of um, just winning the case of the Supreme Court, and then the different things that she went through, and then now she runs the Conviction Integrity Unit. Um, I thought it's just very interesting, and the actual facts out there associated with what she did, and we just had Valerie back in. Um, with George. an exoneree, and that was pretty interesting as well. Um, What's like another episode another that really one, stuck out? Well, it's, I do still coach soccer. Um, I found Andy Appleby interesting. I've known him. He's grown through the sports industry, and Amazing. he owned an English professional soccer team, which was very interesting. And we just had Dave Dwayhe on, um, who owns DCFC, and he's uh, a soccer player. Like me, and I still coach, so I find uh, I find those interesting. But they've all been great. That's um, yeah, it's so amazing. So speaking of that, so we always hear Keith's the coach, and it's how he meets people. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what's your soccer look like these days? Yeah, well, I have coached travel soccer um, basically ever since I've been in America. Maybe running a couple of years off. I coach in Michigan. I coach travel soccer, and uh, yeah, you you meet a lot of interesting people a lot of parents who are overly invested invested i mean they do put time and money into this and it's For sure. uh, it's interesting uh seeing the dynamics sometimes with parents and kids you coach and uh, the whole journey of sports in america and then you also play in the over 40 league right uh, yeah i still try in the over 30s but i'm pretty dated now in the over 30s so it's mainly over 40s oh yeah so are you even allowed to work to play in the 30s league if you're over 30 
as long as you're over oh, 30, sorry. there's no limit. Oh, I thought you were But, <laughs> I heard but this say. year, there was like a big influx of like 31, 32 year olds, yeah. and I'm 46, and there's only. So now they're like, yeah. kick you out, go to the over 40 league. <laughs> well, if they need subs, I'll come in and play. But yeah, over 40 is where I play. That makes sense. And does it still give you as much joy as it did? Yeah, it's good exercise. It's great camaraderie, hanging with friends. We often go out and grab a drink, drink after the game. Part of our rehydration plan. Oh, yes. And, rehydration uh, and beer. I think that's great. That's right. Um, but no, it's, 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 it's a good social thing. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast, Keith. And I can't wait to interview more amazing guests with you. All right. Yes, um, we've enjoyed having you on, Jordana. And uh, looking forward to all of our guests coming up in 24. We're excited. Thanks. Keith. Jordana, let's get to the heart of the matter. Let's do it. So we, we just chatted briefly about myself. Yeah, so I guess I'm doing this wrap-up. You want to hear all about you. So I thought your story is super interesting. I think that you've definitely had a lot of adversities, but you've definitely risen above, and you didn't want to go back to UK. And I think that it's really, truly amazing to see that. And that you're definitely a hustler. And I can definitely see over the last year of knowing you, you've definitely done many different things. But, yeah, it's it's funny when, like I'm sure you did when we talked uh, about your story, there's always things you feel you should have said or should have said different or you know, ultimately you write your own story, right? Yeah. And you, I think it's important to look back and realize the the things you've done well and, and, and acknowledge that and also acknowledge the times where you've had lesson learning opportunities, put it that way. Exactly. And, uh, try and keep growing and try and set goals for the future. And I think the older you get, the more you solidify what your core values are and you try and act accordingly with them each time. I think the quote really is that I keep hearing is that growth is things happening. You don't you if you you can't stay stagnant, you have to grow. Cuz you stay stagnant, you're just going to be stuck and you don't want to be stuck, you want to grow. Keith, I'm excited that you asked me to be your co-host and I think that we've had some really great episodes and I think that we have a lot more amazing guests for the future. Yeah, and I think everyone's story is is interesting. We try and find people who've taken risks and had setbacks and you know i know i've taken risks and had setbacks and had successes and i think some of our most interesting guests have had those as well so exactly if you're out there take a risk exactly take a risk today we told you to do it on a self-belief podcast come back for more next time that's right believe in yourself and set a plan and go for it At Regal Payments, we help businesses accept payments in the most cost-effective and efficient ways possible. Call Regal to find out how we can help your business not only save costs, but streamline accepting payments from your customers. RegalPayments.com